welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Crabby Christian, a Misfit Media Network production. I am your host and resident crappy Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. All right, I am so excited to have Monica on the show today. I want to give a preface that I'm fighting a head cold. Tis the season. She's got a little bit of the something. We're going to do our best to not cough in your ear this entire interview. But <laughs> if the pre-roll and and how we have been conversating before I hit record gives us any indication, we're about to have a really incredible in-depth conversation about choosing to be pro-life and what's behind that. And is it religion? Is it science? Is it philosophy? Is it none of them, all of them? Monica, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you have one of the most interesting backstories that I've seen, especially for someone who is pro-life and not just pro-life. Like You run an organization that is furthering education and information and the conversation surrounding the right to be born. And you're an atheist. Yes. And you were raised in the Catholic Church. I was. Made your decisions and moved away from that, but held on to this belief in the sanctity of life. I know that that is probably a lifelong conversation, but I think you've probably gotten pretty good at giving us like a bite size of what that looks like. No one's ever accused me of being good at being brief, but I will (laughs) say, yeah, so I, I was raised Catholic. I left the Catholic Church in high school. I had a a long deconversion. That's a totally different story. Uh, But in the course of that deconversion, there were things that I had been raised to believe that I abandoned. I mean, the most the most obvious of which is the beliefs in God and various supernatural ideas gone. But also in terms of the way we live our lives and our cultural context and things, I would say in particular for me personally, my ideas about gender roles and about sexuality changed a lot as I went from Catholic to atheist. But there were some ideas that did not change at all. And in particular, my lifelong passionate opposition to abortion did not alter in the slightest because I think it was not really rooted in faith to begin with. It was more the idea that abortion kills human beings. And I think we should not do that. Yeah. And that has only intensified as I became an adult and as I got my biology degrees and as I had children. None of that mitigated it. It made it stronger. And so when people talk about opposition to abortion being rooted in religion, I will not go so far as to say that's not true for anyone. It's true for some people, but it's definitely not true for me. It's definitely not true for the people who run or volunteer with secular pro-life. And I have found in doing this work that it's often not true, even for a lot of people who are faithful, religious people in this context. One of one of the examples I've found instructive is particularly for Catholics, because Catholics are the ones known to be so gung-ho about opposing abortion, right? 
Catholics also oppose contraception, but you do not see anything close to the ferocity, to the lifelong devotion, to the intensity of their opposition to abortion. You don't see anything close to that with their opposition to contraception. And if you talk to most Catholics, I won't pretend to speak for all of Catholicism, but at least in my work, if you talk to most Catholics, they might tell you, yes, I'm morally opposed to not even just potentially abortifacient stuff, but even condoms. I'm morally opposed to contraception because I'm not going to try to explain why because I'm not good at it. But like they're morally opposed to contraception, but they're not trying to outlaw condoms across the country. There's right. no equivalent there. That is a good example. Catholic opposition to contraception is a good example of people who have personal religious views of how they're going to live their life, but they're not necessarily trying to get all of society to fall in line with that. That's a good example of that. Abortion is different entirely because whether someone chooses to use a condom or not, you might think it's a good idea or a bad idea for whatever ethical or philosophical or religious reasons you have, but it's up to them. That's their private decision. And and we can all recognize there are many, many, I would say the vast, vast majority of people who oppose abortion have things in their life that they think, I don't agree with you, but that's your private decision. Absolutely, Abortion is different. And for anyone willing to remotely, objectively listen to the conversation, even if they disagree, it's not hard to see why. Right. Because abortion, at bare minimum, at bare minimum, if we strip the philosophy away, abortion definitely does kill human organisms. Right. Definitely. And the people who oppose it believe those human organisms are valuable human beings. And many believe they are our children. So there is no comparison between, hey, not me personally, I, I'm pro-contraception. But like if you are saying, you know, I don't, I don't think contraception is a good idea. I don't think sex outside of marriage is a good idea. I don't think whatever, whatever it is, like I personally wouldn't do it. You do you. That's for a lot of things, even right. for Catholics, even for hardcore Catholics. Right. Abortion is different because it involves a third party. That can't speak for themselves. That can't speak for themselves. That is invisible. Right who is often the subject of gross, massive, cultural, decades-long dehumanization, that is killed. This yeah. is the central tenet. I don't know if you have any like nominally pro-choice people listening to your podcast, but if you want to understand, speaking in generalizations, if you want to understand the pro-life perspective, you have to understand the central tenet is that abortion kills valuable humans. Yep. That's the, you don't have to agree with it. You can think I definitely don't think that's true. It's not killing because of these reasons. They're not people because of these reasons. Like you can have all your arguments. I'm not asking you to agree at this time. I'm asking you to recognize that is the thing. That is the central thing. If you want to understand why pro-life people say and do XYZ, start with remembering that is the central premise. Everything else flows from that. And you don't have to be religious to recognize the biological reality. And you don't have to be religious to have a problem with killing humans. I said this before we started recording. I'm a lifelong Christian. It is the foundation on which my life is built. But my reasoning for being very passionately pro-life is probably less than 40% based on my religion. And even that comes back to a conversation of when life begins and the belief in that in scripture it says that you know I knew you in the womb and I knitted you together in your your mother's body and to me that communicates that that is when life 
begins and when God has a hand in our creation. But the crazy part is there's so much biological evidence. Yeah. The same argument that like, yes, this is what my religion believes. And I hold to that. But there is so much more to this conversation. And you said this before start recording. It's not that the religious belief isn't enough. It's just that there's so much more that you can almost like stack on top of that and make your argument. Yeah. Or if like me, the religious belief ceases to be a part of your life. Right. There's already so much else that it doesn't change it. Right. In contrast, again, speaking for me personally, in contrast, there are other things in Catholicism that when the religious beliefs cease to be a part of my life, that was really the main reason for those other things. Yeah. And so they shifted because that was it. Yes. That was the foundation and it was gone. But for this, there's there's plenty of other foundations. So I get very frustrated when people say, oh, it's fine for you to personally be pro-life, but you can't impose your views on other people because, first of all, everybody does that all the time about everything, <laughs> first of yeah. all. But also that very premise, it's begging the question. It's assuming that the pro-choice view is some kind of objective, philosophical, neutral perspective. And any deviation from it is just your personal view. That's not true at all. Right. The bottom line is, in my view, there are two major tenets to the abortion debate. Okay. There's the debate about fetal personhood. Mm -hmm. Are these human beings, are they biological human beings? If they are, are they people? Do they have moral value? Why or why not? When do we decide that? Blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm not saying blah, dismissive, but just like it goes on. It's just so lengthy. That's one thing. And then separate other thing is bodily rights. Whether the fetus is a person or not, whether the fetus is a baby or not, is there ever a situation where another human being has a right to use an unwilling person's body? If not, why not? If so, when? Those are the two big categories, okay? But the thing that bothers me about don't push your views is there's no version of this where you're not pushing a view. Because if you argue for and fight for especially elective abortion at any stage, the metaphysical basement of that perspective is either going to be that embryos and fetuses are not valuable people with the right to life and slash or that bodily rights is more important than the right to life. And those are both philosophical positions. Those are both views that you hold that are not you didn't you didn't discover them like gravity. They're they're your moral and philosophical perspective that you need to articulate and defend just like pro-life people do. There's no version of this because. If I'm right and embryos and fetuses are valuable human beings, are children, then the pro-choice position is arguing that it should be okay to kill them for any reason. Right. That requires a defense. Right. It's not enough for you to say, well, you can have your position that's different from mine. Just don't impose it on me. You're imposing a view also. Not only on me, but yours ends lives. Like, that, like yeah. you said, I've had that argument so many times where I'm like, look, if I'm wrong, a bunch of people got to be born. Right. If you're wrong, it's the Holocaust of a generation. So I'll steal man. I'll steal man on the other side. If we're wrong, we are requiring millions of people to go through having some other entity use their body when they don't want them to in ways that often even healthy pregnancies are a pain in the butt. Yeah. Right. And and sometimes quite dangerous and sometimes quite debilitating. It can affect your finances. It can affect all this. I want to emphasize that I understand that. There's a heavy cost to requiring people to not be able to end their pregnancies. That is true. Mm -hmm. We have to take that seriously. 
But I wish they would take seriously the heavy cost of their version of things, which is that you are killing something. You're killing something. You're definitely killing biological humans. Right. And I believe you are killing valuable human beings, i.e. people, children, and to the tune of hundreds of thousands of times a year. So don't get me wrong. I understand that it is very serious to tell people, and that's not even getting into the enormous impacts of just birthing and having children on your life. Right. Absolutely. It's very serious. And you're, and it's like, we get that. Like I, we get that. Most, I think, pro-life people aren't out here going, not a big deal. Like you just get pregnant. But I do think a lot of the pro-life argument is also in most cases, I would say probably over 90. I mean, I don't even know what the percentages are. I do. Like you made a choice. It's 95% of abortions in the country are performed on healthy fetuses carried by healthy mothers with no medical emergency present that were conceived in consensual sex. Right. That's 95% of the time. Now this is pre-Dobbs. Everything is shifting now. Right. But my point being, I I get the sense that there are a lot of people who are pro-choice, who are not that into the debate. There are pro-life people like this too. There's a lot of people that like, they don't really want, they don't want you to yell at them. They don't want to fight about it. It's a very upsetting topic because you're either supporting the Holocaust or you're supporting millions of women enslaved. Like no matter what you do, they don't want to be sucked into it. I sympathize. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But a lot of times the people who don't want to be that involved in the debate have no knowledge of the numbers here. So first of all, I want to emphasize again, per the Guttmacher Institute in 2020, there were 930,000 abortions in the country. Even the CDC, which doesn't collect data from all states, had it at over 600,000. My point is order of magnitude. We're in the hundreds of thousands every year. A lot of people don't realize how very, very common it is. Oh, it's, it's being treated like healthcare. And then separately, they don't understand the reasons for it. And the abortion rights advocacy side, they have every incentive to de-emphasize that information. They don't want to right. talk about the reasons. They want to say the reasons are none of your business. And they want to heavily, heavily focus on the really dire cases, you know, situations of rape, situations of life-threatening, whatever. And and that's important. Those warrant their own conversation because they are dire. But to act as if that represents the average abortion in America is absurd. It is. And I can't tell you how many people I've met who have told me that they're pro-choice and they don't want to talk about it. And I never make people talk about it. I can't stop talking about it. But like, if you don't want to talk about it, I'm not going to make you talk about it. So I've always been a big greens powder skeptic personally. I don't love that all of the fruits and vegetables are grown overseas and then boiled, which takes all the nutrients out of them. It just seemed kind of pointless until I found Field of Greens. Field of Greens is grown and processed in the U.S. It is flash frozen, so it keeps all of its nutrients. And all it is flavored with is stevia, and it tastes great. And I'm not lying to you. I'm picky. This is a greens powder that tastes great, and then you're going to get the benefits of having more fruits and vegetables in your diet. I immediately saw more energy and help with my digestion within the first month of drinking it. I've been drinking it for a few months now. I'm starting to see benefits for my hair and my skin and just feeling better and healthier overall. It is radically different than any other greens powder. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. And I promise you're going to love this product. If you don't love it, they will give you a 100% money back guarantee. So I got you 15% off of your first order 
and free rush shipping. You can go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code Blake. So that's promo code Blake at fieldofgreens.com. Check it out. I can't tell you how many people I've met, they're pro-choice because they knew about some situation that was really dire and scary. And then they hear about some situation that represents the more typical abortion, i.e. my ex-girlfriend, you know, she's with someone else now and she let me know that she actually got pregnant. She's getting an abortion. And this is very appalling to me because that's not what it's supposed to be for in their mind. And then they get upset and they're like, you know, maybe I'm more on the fence on this than I thought. And that's frustrating to me, Monica, because your ex-girlfriend is describing what is the vast majority of time the more typical situation. I'm not saying it's not serious. Getting pregnant is scary. Yeah. Having children is intimidating. You know, there's it's these are serious life altering situations, but they are not life threatening situations. And to the extent that the public conceptualizes abortion in the United States as you're going to die if you can't get this, of course, they're going to oppose regulating it because they're good people. and They don't want anyone to die. Right. Legit. But to the extent they understand the actual reality which is that that's almost never what's going on. Right. Then I I, I need that. If you're going to be pro-choice, I want you to be pro-choice with eyes wide open. And be honest. And be honest about what is happening and why. And maybe you don't care. Okay. You don't have to care. But if it's if you don't care, there's no need to kid yourself about it. No. It's the morally like bending yourself into a position that you can't hold. Because, I mean, I have this conversation on my platform Typically, when it riles up in the headlines, I'm like, all right, let's talk about it. A lot. (laughs) Which is a lot. And I do it from a place of very similarly to what you do, just to give people language so that they can enter these conversations and not just kind of be like, I'm pro-life because murder's wrong. Like, yes, again, on the most basic level, that's where we're at. But sometimes you Can we explore this a little bit more? Can we talk about it a little bit more? And the pushback that I get is almost exclusively, keep your religion out of my body because these people know that I'm a Christian, even though... I very rarely inject my religion into the conversation, to be honest. Sure. I just know that that's there. Oh, I have people who who will make the same arguments we are making, and someone will go find their social media profiles to try to see if they think that they are a Christian right. so they can bring it up. Right. Delegitimize it. Like, in, like, yeah. my, like, you have a whole religion. Most people, like, you have a whole religion of your own. It's just not Christianity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or it is Christianity. There's a lot of pro-choice right. Christians. Right. Yeah. But the, the other one that's really common that you just touched on is what about cases of rape? What about cases of incest? Sure. I'm much more sympathetic to those questions than the keep your religion out of it. The keep your religion out of it is a joke. It's it, a terrible argument. It is. I have very little patience for it. As someone who isn't religious, you're like, Shut up. <laughs> yes. Yes. But also, even if I were, it's just a bad argument. You need to show where my argument is incorrect, where you disagree and why, and then talk about it. I mean, you don't have to, but like if we were being intellectually curious and trying to actually have a complex ethical conversation, that's what you do. Right. It's a knee-jerk dismissive reaction because you can't, you don't know what to say or you don't have the patience for it. Gotten so that I just go, okay. Yeah. Like I just don't even engage with those people. <laughs> But yeah, as an atheist, it's especially annoying because and it's such a non-falsifiable theory, which is a major pet peeve of mine. You see this a lot. This is this is the folly of getting too into identity politics. It's unthinking. And so we'll have people say, keep your religion out of it. I'll say, I am an atheist. And then some of them will pivot and then have a different conversation. And that's great. Uh-huh. But some of them will say, you're a liar. 
You're not an atheist. Some of them will even say you're either secretly Christian or you're unconsciously Christian. You're just steeped in Christianity and can't escape it. Again, the mental gymnastics that requires. Sure, exactly. And so uh, similarly, I don't know if you've seen this, the whole mention be making laws about women's bodies and all these things. And I'll say, well, what about all the women who are pro-life? What about the women who brought the case to the Supreme Court? What about the women who proposed legislation against this? Polls show that actually pro-life women tend to be way more into this than pro-life men in a a variety of ways. And I say that, and some people will pivot and get to a a more relevant argument, but other people will say, oh, internalized misogyny. I've also seen, obviously, I haven't experienced this personally, but I have witnessed it happen. Well, they'll be talking about abortion in the context of race. And for example, a friend of mine who is a black woman will say, I'm against abortion these reasons. And they'll say she's whitewashed. And that, you know, it's, and so my point is, and not everybody does this. Some people are much more thoughtful, but there is when you get too steeped into this idea of these tribes that have to be literally constant, which is insane. Then you get, you know, you're a secret Christian. You're an internalized misogynist. People of color are whitewashed. Like you cannot handle. It's so frail. You're frail. It Your is. position is frail. That's the perfect if you word for it. Can't handle any deviation from this ridiculous box that you've created. Then you're weak. Those people that want, like, what's so interesting to me is the people that want to point a finger at the person making an argument in an attempt to avoid have, like, having the conversation. You have to continually be like, it's your religion. You're a bigot. You're, you know, all of these things. I'm like, but okay, okay, okay. None of that is true, but okay. Let's say that was all true. Let's say I'm a terrible person who hates most of humanity, but worships fetuses for some reason and really wants to control everybody's sex life because I, because I care. Let's say all that ridiculous nonsense was true. You still didn't answer my question. Exactly. We're still not having the conversation. Just to keep it even handed, there is an equivalent of this on our side. And I bring this up sometimes. So I talk about how secular pro-life, my group, secular pro-life, we try to be nonpartisan, non-sectarian. It's not atheist pro-life. I'm an atheist, but not an anti-religious thing. It's just a a religious thing. Like we're just, we we don't really care what your religious beliefs are. Are you with us on this, this issue? Yeah. And same thing, same thing with politics. So I consider myself a political conservative. I'm the executive director. Our board president, Kelsey Hazard, she is a moderate. And our board vice president, Teresa Bakovinak, she is a liberal. Yeah. And we try to keep it really, you know, keeping that. And we're all friends. We're quite good friends. And we try to use each other's different perspectives to keep it as even handed as possible. I say all that to bring up for our side. You know, their side is like, oh, you know, old Christian white men, blah, 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 blah. Right. But our side sometimes does an equivalent thing. So one thing I try to emphasize all the time, for example, if you are already passionately pro-life and you're talking about the issue, when you speak of the other side, please be conscientious about referring to them as pro-choice or if you prefer pro-abortion, but in terms of their position on abortion, don't say leftists, don't say feminists, don't say Democrats, because yes, I understand that the Democratic Party platform is very extreme, but the day-to-day Democrats, four in 10 of them think it should be limited to first trimester or earlier. I think it's like, I think it's two in 10 it might be one in 10. It's one or two in 10. I think it should be basically illegal except for the hard cases. And I mean, that's a minority, but it's, it, you'll meet them, right? You know, they we exist. Everybody who is on our side, I want them to feel connected, included. I want them speaking up about this. I want them to feel emboldened and empowered. I don't want them to feel that when they try to interface with the pro-life movement or pro-life activists, that 
they're not welcome because they don't fit the tribal boxes that we've made up. Okay. I'm not saying they're made up. There's correlations, but I don't want us to make the same mistake their side is making. Exactly. I want us to include anyone who is with me on trying to end this atrocity. You're with me. You're with me. I don't care if we disagree on 25 other issues. I'm obsessed with this issue. Right. Right. (laughs) And, and so I just want to, point out because i do see that especially leftist that's the one i see the most often we're like oh leftists think this and leftists don't care about babies and leftists like look i i get i got it and i understand that because it does cognitively seem to be a very big point of the party right this yeah, the big deal to the think party. Of how often you disagree with your party like do you exactly really agree with your party on every single thing do you feel like you should be responsible for defending every single dumb thing that your politician says. I mean, come on. No. So it just depends on who you're talking to. If if your target audience in your mind is Democratic politicians, that's one thing. But if you're yeah. talking to regular people, don't put up barriers that we don't need. Don't accidentally tell people you can't be pro-life because you're a leftist. You can't be pro-life because you're an atheist, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need that extra hurdle. No. Yes, you can. Not only can you, you should. Yeah. Glad you're here. Yeah. Let's have that conversation. Yeah. Because what's so interesting about a lot of people on the left who are pro-choice is so much of their policy cares about humans. They care about immigration. They care about transgender rights. They care about taxation and all of these things. And I'm like, yeah. But when it comes down to the most basic human right, you're like, no. Yeah. That one makes my brain hurt a little bit. Well, it's going to be either because they think that the embryo or fetus is like a potential person, but not a person yet. That's super, super common. Yeah. Or it's going to be because they're really, really worried about women's bodily rights. And to be frank, I'm not trying to be all Pollyanna here, but like to the extent that we can recognize, and this is absolutely true. All right. There are millions of people on the other side who are good people who are trying to take care of people who are trying to protect people. Our differences are not whether we care about people. Our differences are foundational premises. And to the extent you can peel away the other stuff and have that conversation, it's a much more useful conversation. It's very hard to do, especially online. I actually have an article. Maybe you can link it later, which is like, I forget what it's called. It's like tips for making online debate worth your time. Yeah. Very narrow. Like, it is. You, you don't want to spin your wheels. And to the extent that you can have these conversations with people you have relationships with and with people in person or even on video chat, it goes so much better it does. than online. But there is a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap. And we need to be finding ways to emphasize our common ground and build sort of a channel to make the conversation possible. Because what I'm not going to do is stop talking about it. So it may as well be useful, right? Right. Like, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to shut up about it. Nope. You're not good. Like the there are so many people on the other side that feel very, very passionate about like yeah. they're not gonna stop talking about it. What if I know this is crazy? Like, what if we tried <laughs> to scooch towards each other and have a real conversation instead of just yelling what we believe? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so I it's hard to do online. And I think the more online you are, the harder it is to keep in sight that these conversations are possible. It's just yeah. such a different environment. Yeah. You can do it online sometimes too. I'll send you the article. Yeah. And honestly, a lot, like I said earlier, by and large, when I enter this conversation online, 
I'm not even so much trying to, I'm really not trying to change minds. Although those getting those messages is always really incredible. It's the best. It is the the best. best. But by and large, like I said, I'm trying to give language. I'm trying to... And space. And space. And make it so that you can enter these conversations when you're having them in real life with a real person and not just say, oh, I'm just, I'm just pro-life because I'm a Christian, right? That Yeah, yeah. Well, and also another thing that frustrates me about that is, at least in my experience, there are so many people, especially pro-life people activists pro-life and by that i i define that broadly anyone who's willing to do anything about it do you donate do you volunteer do you bring it up with your friends if you are more than privately pro-life a lot of times it is not just because of whatever your religious views are and it's not even just because of whatever your philosophical views are a lot of times it's because of life-changing personal experiences that have brought you unequivocally to this moment so to say i'm pro-life because i'm christian and i don't know how many people really even say that but to say that is just leaving so much out. I think there's a subset of pro-choicers who think you're pro-life because you lack experience. You're pro-life because uh, how hard and difficult the world can be. And you've got this ridiculous rose-tinted view of how smoothly pregnancy goes and how smoothly parenting goes and all these things. And if you had more experience, you wouldn't be so silly. But really, so many people oppose abortion because of trauma. Because they love someone who had an abortion and is because they have one, they know someone who had one, or or they didn't have one, but they almost did, or they know someone that almost was and then wasn't, and or because of because of their experiences with it, particularly communities with disabilities and the, they Oof. see the way they're humanized and like there's all kinds of ways, there's all kinds of ways that you go through something that maybe you kind of thought you were pro life before, you were kind of pro choice or whatever. And then something happened to you and it was a lightning strike. Yep. It wasn't lack of experience. It was experience. It was experience. And it, it makes sense too, because to be quite frank, we're holding the vastly less popular position in order to be loud and persistent and stubborn about an unpopular position. You would need to be drawing on something. Well, you have to be connected to it. It has to be more yeah. than just, even just philosophical. Like most people that I know that are active in this conversation like you said, had one, someone close to them had one, or the honestly really prevalent in a lot of my community is a doctor told them they needed one, that they should have one, that they yes. terminate this life. And now they have, even if the child was born with disability, now they have this human being that's a part of them that yes. they love. And they're like, they're like wait a minute, I, I love this pillow. child. I see this child as valuable and it would just seem shallow and hypocritical for me. Like only my child, your child, I don't care. Right. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. You wouldn't apply that to anything else, hopefully. Well, and you know, when I have this conversation, I love kids. I've always loved kids. And on the religious front, I love children because Jesus loved children as well and really prioritized them in the kingdom. But also... I just really love kids and I think they are the future and they are our best shot at being better. So why wouldn't I really passionately oppose the ability to make sure that they don't enter the world? Right. Oh, this is the other thing too. It's I've had this conversation recently with a friend of mine from the other side and we were talking about just in general, you know, what obligations do adults have to children? And is it only parents or is it society? And we were talking about this analogy, you know, when you get really into the abortion debate, you end up with like weird thought experiments. But oh, yeah. we draw this analogy of it's not that weird, I guess. You're you're you 
as an adult, you're walking in the woods and you find like three-year-old girl who is wandering by herself lost. Looks like she's been lost for a while. There's nobody around. You're not her parent. Right. And you did not put her in that situation. Right. Do you have any moral obligation to help her or not? And I'm not saying that's equivalent to pregnancy and abortion. There's a lot more to it than that. There's the direct use of your body and all these things. Before we even get into that, at a baseline level, do adults have obligations to children? Even before you talk about parenting, does society have obligations to marginalized, vulnerable groups. Now, obviously, we suck at this all the time. Right. In the United States and other countries, constant, total failure. I understand. Right. If you point out to me, well, then how can we do this? And this? Because we suck. Right. Because we suck. And that's a bad thing. And I would like to be not as bad at it. Yeah. That's not a good example. Okay. I'm, I'm talking about at our highest ideals. Right. Do we have obligations to take care of vulnerable people, especially children? And it's not. In my view, it is not only parents. In fact, I think society is a lot better when we don't act like parents are the only ones who have to put through the enormous energy and effort to bring up the next generation. I think to some extent at a low level, like obviously parents have more direct and more immediate obligations and rights, but we should all take this seriously. Everybody should take this seriously. So someone that's on the pro-choice side is going to hear you say that And another really common response that I get is, well, what about if they're going to be born into this really terrible environment? What if they're going to be born into abuse, addiction, exploitation? There is a very common argument that they're better, like it's better, they're better dead than being born into that, which my response to that is say that to their faces, you know, say that to the marginalized faces and tell them they shouldn't be here and they never can. My response is, do you know they can hear you? Right. You're not just talking about some abstract fetus and whether or not this fetus should be aborted because any situation that you're describing, people who have already lived through that situation are on Twitter, you know, or wherever you are. Right. I just want to, just before we continue the conversation, just want to throw out there that the people whose lives you suggest aren't even worth living, yeah. they can hear you. This conversation came up not that long ago on my Instagram and I shared five or six direct dms from people saying i was a product of rape i went through foster care right i'm so sick of you talking about foster care like it's worse than death can you calm down and also on the most basic level look at the people who have succeeded made massive changes in technology in politics that had we were born into crap yeah honestly i kind of feel like it's it's a very first world modern perspective to act as if if you can't guarantee a relatively painless easy life that it's not even worth trying where is your grit right also where does that end yeah yeah where does that Uh, end (laughs) but at the same time also part of the reason they say that again coming down a little bit So I tell people, if you want to understand the pro-life perspective, you have to remember that from our perspective, you don't have to agree, but from our perspective, you are killing a child. Right. You have to remember that. Just imagine we're talking about killing a two-year-old and then hear how you sound. But the flip side of that is, again, generalizations, caveat, caveat. If you want to understand the pro-choice perspective, you have to remember that for a lot of them, they don't believe that. And so the closest analogy I've been able to come up with 
I think most pro-choice people, they view abortion as preventing a life from coming into existence, not ending one that exists. And if you keep that in mind, if you think of it like arguing about whether to wear a condom or not, if you think of it like that, almost everything else they say makes total sense. If they're saying, let's say that you, you know, sci-fi movie where you know that if you have sex on this night in these conditions, the child will have this really difficult thing. But if you have it the next night under other conditions, they won't. From that perspective, it's like, why wouldn't you pick the easier conditions? That's what they're saying. A lot of times make these quality of life arguments. A lot of times what they just mean is let's prevent this suffering from happening in the first place. They don't mean it like let's kill this kid because they don't see it like that. Now, it's very dark because you are, in fact, killing something. And also, even if that is what you mean, you still need to be thoughtful about how you're talking about this because you're still not changing the fact that you think it would be better to not even exist at all than to endure what the barista at the coffee shop already went through. Like, what does that mean, man? Right. But to that point of they think it's preventing, we believe it's ending, do you find that people will engage in the, like, embryology, fetal, will they engage in that part of the conversation with you? Or do they kind of just want to dismiss it? Because, I mean, in my opinion, the reality of biology is on the pro-life side. It is. It totally is. It's a tricky thing. I think that most of the time when pro-choice people say that it's not a baby, it's not a child, it's, you know, it's not alive yet, it's not a human, most of the time when they say anything of that nature, if you, if you dig into it, they don't necessarily mean it's not an embryo, it's not a fetus, it's not a biological human organism. Usually they mean, I don't care that it's a human organism, it's not a valuable person. Yeah. And then you have to start to get into the personhood debates, which are not all the same. So you'll have different criteria for what qualifies you for personhood. And then basically the form of the conversation goes, first you need to make sure they can get to a point where they can even articulate that criteria. And a lot of times they cannot. And I'm not blaming them. A lot of times it's like, Maybe they haven't really debated this a lot, or maybe they're going with a gut instinct feeling, but they haven't really dug into what they mean and why. And so they might not be able to articulate it to you. But if you can get them to a point where they can articulate what in their minds distinguishes biological human being from valuable person, then you start to get into the criteria and say, well, are we applying that consistently? Do you apply that only before birth or also after birth and all these things? That's the personhood debate. Yeah. But there are some people who actually are just unfamiliar with literally the biology. I think that it's very important for us, for pro-life side, to be well-versed so that we can talk about that because I see a lot of confusion. Most commonly, the confusion is over what is an organism. And that's where you hear people conflating sperm and zygotes or eggs and embryos and all these things. And then then they, they conflate it, they get it confused. And then they accuse you of thinking that. And you're like, this is very frustrating because you're wrong twice. Right, exactly. You don't understand the science and you think I don't understand the science. You're making fun of me for your miseducation. Exactly. So I'm so tired. But (laughs) but that's where you hear like, if abortion is murder, then I guess masturbation is genocide, right? If abortion is murder, then I guess every period is killing someone or whatever it is. Or, or, Or you've probably seen this one maybe where they'll say, I'm pro-life, so I guess that means I had chicken for breakfast and it shows like some eggs. And you're like, no, it just means you don't know what an organism is, man. You're telling on yourself. Right. Okay. And so we try to talk about, you know, when you say life begins at conception, that can mean different things. For some people, that can be a religious thing where they believe 
something about ensoulment. That can be what it means. But it could also just be, listen, humans have life cycles that have a beginning and an end. Okay. And the beginning is the zygote and the end is when you die. Right. That's what it is. And before the zygote, that's not you. Those are gametes. Those are sex cells. They literally reproduce in a different way by meiosis, like on a cellular level. And then when you combine them, now you have a paradigm shift. Now you have an organism. You have a new set of DNA. Like you have a new set of DNA. But I, but I've been starting to tell pro-life people this. You do have a new set of DNA 99.9% of the time. But even if you didn't, that's not even the point because like we theoretically could clone me. You could take some of my cells and take the DNA out of it and inject it into an egg and stimulate it to grow. You theoretically could do that. And that clone would have the same DNA as me, but it would be a different organism. True. It would be a different. We use the DNA thing as a shortcut because clearly if your DNA is entirely different from your mother's, you guys are not the same thing. Right. And that's why we talk about it. And that's important, but it's, it's a pointer to the main point, which is you have a different organism. Yeah. And when you have a zygote, you have a different organism. You don't have to care. You could not care at all. You could be like, yeah, you have a different organism and it's not a person and I don't care. That's fine. At least be honest. One thing at a time. Can you please never, ever say to me again, every sperm is sacred. I don't care at all about sperm. And nobody does. No. Even Catholics are not like, oh, no, don't waste a single sperm. That's not, you're confusing Monty Python with real life. Okay, (laughs) That's not what's happening. So the biology is important. And I have found, whether it's philosophically, whatever your philosophical position When you talk about the biology, there are a bunch of people who say they don't care, but there are a bunch of people who do care. In fact, we have a post on our blog where we just, it's just screen caps of people talking about how they used to be pro-choice because they thought it was literally, when you say clump of cells, they thought it was literally a sphere of nebulous cells at the point of most abortions. And then often what will happen is most often they will experience their own pregnancy and they'll go in for the first appointment that's relatively early on and be shocked or thunderstruck when their medical provider is like oh your heart your child's heart rate is blah 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 and you're like heart rate right right and it like looks like a little gummy bear you know yeah exactly other times they'll say they'll take a biology class or an anatomy class or a physiology class and they'll realize that the clump of cells thing is a euphemism it's literally is it's covering up a lot have you heard the bill barr bit where he's like, with the cake? Well, it would have been. Yeah. I think that argument, I love him personally, just always have. But, you know, yeah, if that's the argument that you want to make, it would have been. But even beyond that, it already is. Well, have you heard the the Polaroid analogy? Uh Uh-uh. Imagine that you, you know, pick anything extremely valuable. But a lot of times I hear you see Bigfoot and you snap a, a clear picture of bigfoot it is proof on a polaroid and then while you're waiting for it to visualize someone tears it all up right you're like why did you do that and they're like well it wasn't a polaroid picture yet you're like oh that's helpful right exactly better now but the thing is is even beyond that argument bill you know the polaroid or the cake but when abortions are possible it already was it certainly is biologically a human being right and we believe you could go to secularprolife.org slash abortion where we outline the whole thing first premise that we need people to, it's not even a premise it's just a fact that we need people to acknowledge so we can continue the conversation is that zygotes embryos and fetuses are biological human organisms it's different from gametes it's different from skin cells it's different from bacteria etc cetera, etc cetera. we can just set all that aside that's that's silly yeah 
it's embarrassing, honestly. And you don't need it to be pro-choice anyway. So just please. But that's the first premise. But then the next, and this is huge, is you do have to engage the personhood debate. And our side often kind of does a shortcut. I, I get it. But we do it all the time where we say, biologically, this is a human being. So abortion is murder or whatever. And you're skipping so much that you're covering so many premises and discussions that other people aren't ready to skip. And you need to be prepared to have these conversations. The personhood, in my view, fetal personhood is the core of the whole debate. The other side pushes back hard on this. They'll say it doesn't matter if the fetus is a person or not, because no one can use your body against your will. So they're saying, no, fetal personhood is not the core. The core is bodily rights. But in my view, for most people, for the vast majority of people, even if they believe that's what they think, when you dig into it, for most of them, it is fetal personhood. What they really mean most of the time, not everyone, I have met pure bodily rights people, but most of the people I talk to who make the bodily rights argument, what they really mean is, I do not believe the fetus is a person and therefore I think bodily rights suffices. That's what they really mean. And you can tell this pretty easily, actually, because all you have to do is ask them, do you think abortion should be legal at any stage in pregnancy for any reason? Now, most of the time, they'll try not to answer the question and they'll do a bunch of different dodges. But if you're having if you're having an amicable conversation, you're like, I'm not it's not a gotcha. I'm right, really like I'm genuinely asking. Explore your perspective, you know. And I will just tell you up front. I will tell you where I'm going with this up front. It's not a trick. If you believe at least elective abortion, abortion of healthy fetuses carried by healthy women, no medical emergency, et cetera, if you believe at least that should be illegal after whatever you say, 20 weeks, 24 weeks, third trimester, if there is a point before birth where you think elective abortion should be illegal, then that is a circumstance where you think basically the fetus has a right to her mother's body. Right. That's effectively what you're saying. Now, that's still very different from my position. Right. But we have that common it's ground. And common if you, ground. If you can see that there's some situations where you think that, it does not mean you're not pro-choice. It probably means you're pro-choice for different reasons than you're primarily articulating. And I would suggest it means you're probably pro-choice because you think that before that point that you listed, not a person, after that point, Maybe yes, a person. And then you have to ask the question of like, well, then how did they, what made them become a person? Right. And to be fair, if you are having these conversations in person and especially with people you have relationships with, please keep in mind, take it super slow. Yeah. You do not need to have this whole conversation in a single sitting. A lot of the work is done in between conversations when people have chance to just let it percolate. Yeah. A lot of people have told us that they became pro-life over years. Oh, yeah. You know, so just... Don't feel in a rush. Don't feel a lot of pressure. Just open the conversation. Let people make them feel safe to talk to you about it, that you won't yell at them, that you won't get super emotional, right. that this is a place where they can just kind of think about it. And you're not going to be like, ha ha, right. you are dumb. Don't know. No, 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 no. But this is the general direction you're going in, which is, OK, is it really a bodily rights argument? And for some people it is. And that's a separate thing. OK, but for most people, it is ultimately, it really is a personhood argument, yeah. even when they don't even know it. And even if you can get them to the point where they recognize that, yes, they do think it's not a person before this point, they might not be prepared yet to articulate why or why not. We don't all just have like this encyclopedia thesis of why we've gotten to where we are. A lot of times it's something that's happened over time, not just for abortion, for anything. So don't act like if they can't give you all the answers right now, that proves their position is unsound. Right. 
it took me a long time to get to where I am where I could talk about all these different things. Yeah, I've been talking about this for years. Right. And it's like what you do. You know, this is this is a conversation yeah. that a lot of people are honestly having on the fringes, even though it is really important and is impacting millions of people's day-to-day lives. Yeah. It's still like it's easier to kind of brush it off to the side and not make it as necessary. To your point of medical necessity, that's another one that comes up really common is, oh, these pro-life laws are going to kill women because they're not going to be able to get the abortions that they need. And I'm interested to hear your take on it. My take on it is typically you're calling something an abortion that isn't an abortion. Mm -hmm. There isn't, to my knowledge, a medical situation where either life is in danger and the answer is to kill the baby. They're going to either do a C-section, get the baby out. Bottom line, first and foremost thing, when you're talking to people about this, they say, what if the life of the mother is in danger? I would not respond with, that's not an abortion. First thing I would say is, women should always be able to get life-saving care, period. First thing, you want to address their central concern. If they're not using the vernacular exactly the same way you are, you can have that conversation. But first address the spirit of what they're asking you. There are a lot of people that believe that pro-life people, especially activists, do not care at all if women are hurt. Right. Some people even believe that they want it to happen because of misogyny or other things. Like some people really believe that. I, 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 I know that it sounds insane to all of us. But so if there's concern about any of that, the first thing you want to do is straight up. Listen, I believe unborn children, preborn children, their lives are valuable. They are worth protecting. But I do not believe anyone should have to commit suicide via pregnancy. Right. That's a, a triage situation or a self-defense situation, but it's different in kind. And we probably have a lot of common ground on those circumstances. Right. And that is separate from my main concern, which is the 95% of abortions where there's yeah. no medical emergency. But we can focus on this because it is important. Don't do the thing where you're like, well, that's really rare. Don't say that. Right, right. On Twitter, everyone's just trying to make everyone look dumb. I get that. But when you're having a, an actual useful conversation... This is probably a legitimate concern. It's a huge concern. There are, I believe, there are a lot of Americans who are pro-choice just specifically for this concern. It is their primary thing. So don't be like, well, that's rare. I don't care if it's rare. School shootings are rare. Right. Still care about school shootings. You know, there's lots of things that are rare and horrible. Right. And we can care about them. So don't do the it's rare thing. You start off first thing, you answer the spirit of their question. They should always be able to get life-saving care. If they are not able to access life-saving care, I agree with you. That's a problem. And we need to figure out how to fix it. Yeah. I do not believe that the only way to fix it is to just have no regulations on abortion. Exactly. I do not believe that. Look at all other first world countries almost entirely. There are only seven countries in the world, including some of the parts of the United States. The United States is weird because we've got the state, so it's patchwork. Right. But there's only, besides us, six countries in the world that just have no limits on abortion. And the reason this is important, there's a bunch of reasons this is important, but one of them is you don't hear about these horrifying, you know, going septic in the parking lot stories in France, right? you know, in the UK, and they have limits on abortion for women very late in abortion. You don't hear about this. Why is that? That's an important question to be asking. Clearly, it is very possible. And in fact, the vast majority of the world has done it where you can have limitations with medical emergency exceptions and figure it out. Yeah. Clearly, it's possible. So first thing, address the spirit of it. Yes, everyone should be able to get life-saving care. I am with you. This is important. Second thing, it's also possible. Right. It's also possible. Okay, second thing. And then you can get more into, if you want, 
How are we defining abortion? How are we defining it medically? How are we defining it legally? How are we defining it ethically? Personally, I'm losing interest in debating how to define it. And I'm more and more just trying to get past the language differences to the core of what they're saying. So if you want to call treatment of ectopic pregnancy and abortion, in some sense, I kind of don't care. You need to be able to get treatment of ectopic pregnancy. And it is medically coded that way in a, in a lot of situations. It gets really confusing. But, but like, if you want to call that an abortion, okay, I still don't think you've gotten from that to, therefore, we cannot regulate abortion. Right. And that is the larger conversation at hand. Yeah. Yes. And so there are, now, I think it's important for our side to understand So there are some things that I think are very clear cut. Like if you have a pregnancy, if you have an embryo that has implanted in a fallopian tube, you have to treat that period. End of story. Right. That's pretty clear cut. You can easily write that into laws and there should be no fear mongering about it. Texas law is a great example where they basically say, you know, an act is not an abortion for these conditions. And one of them is to treat an ectopic pregnancy. Right. In that plain language, it's not. You know, another one that I think is very clear cut is. When you have already had a miscarriage, right? Your child is no longer alive, but you have not passed the remains, right? right? There's an incomplete or missed miscarriage. I do not know one single pro-lifer who is against removing the remains of your child. And there aren't any laws that prohibit that either. There aren't. Now, here's where it gets tricky. And this is what our side needs to understand. This is where they have, I think, more legitimate of a concern. So missed and incomplete miscarriage you know, the child has passed away and you need to make sure that the remains removed from her body safely. But there's also threatened miscarriage. And there's also, I'm going to forget the name of it now. There's two categories of miscarriage where there's still a heartbeat and it's miscarriage is very, very like one of the categories is like miscarriage is probably going to happen. One of the categories is like it's going to happen. But either way, that is a different conversation because there's still a heartbeat. And so then you enter into the how are we defining abortion? You know, is it anything that ends the life? Is it any early termination of pregnancy? What is it? What is it? What is it? And this is important. We need to take this very seriously because we need to be making sure that whatever laws we're passing and language we're using is protecting women in dangerous situations. Our thing here is we're against elective abortion. That's our thing. We are not against protecting people who are in the middle of a medical emergency or have a very likely medical emergency coming up that they shouldn't have to actually endure in order to get care. Right. And so. Originally, right after Dobbs, there were several laws that, like, they all have medical emergency exceptions. They all do. Right. But now we're really getting into the wording of it. And there's been debate about does an emergency have to be actively happening or not? Now, the pro-life OBGYN group, APLOG, they have this whole thing they put out explaining, like, no, it does not have to be already actively in an emergency. It is totally a- appropriate. If the woman wants this and the doctor realizes it's necessary, you can treat, for example, rupture of membranes before viability, even when there's no signs of infection. You can treat these different things even when the emergency hasn't started yet. That is a totally normal thing to do. Dr. Ingrid Scott, she is an OBGYN that writes for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and she's in Texas, and she's talked about how she has personally, as a pro-life OBGYN, ended pregnancies early, induced delivery before viability in these conditions many, many, many times. Now, she will want to say, that's not an abortion, I'm suggesting it's not helpful for us to say that's an abortion, that's not an abortion to in these conversations with say whether you consider that an abortion or not, that is medically necessary and we are not against it. Yeah, it's very important to make sure our laws understand that, to make sure our politicians, our attorney generals, 
our activists, our people on the ground can articulate this. If there is a medical emergency or if there is a probable medical emergency, that's not what we're after. We are after elective abortion where there is no reason to think there's any medical emergency and you are ending this life without any dire medical reason. Now, interestingly, the other side, the you know top tier activists on the other side, they are very much pushing against the idea. They don't want you to use the phrase elective abortion at all anymore. Huh. The American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, they put out a language guide a year or two ago. And one of the phrases they're trying to strike from the record is elective abortion, because they say that it is putting your moral judgments on a medical situation that's none of your business. And we say, well, first of all, disagree, it's none of our business. But second of all, it is medical to be able to delineate between actual life-threatening situations and not. That was my thought. I'm like, that's medical. That's not even oral. You'll see more and more people on the other side will say, well, all pregnancies are life-threatening. I've seen, I'm starting to see a greater uptick of this. And now there's a difference between saying a pregnancy can be life-threatening. Yes, it can. Absolutely. Yes, it can. There's a difference between that and all of them are life-threatening. And you know that doctors understand this because doctors don't just every single time any woman is pregnant anywhere say, hey, in my opinion, medically, you should get an abortion. They don't say that. They wait until there's some kind of all these different factors for a really dire situation where they might say, whether they use the word abortion or not, there'd be dire factors that they have documented and they'll say, because of these specific reasons above and beyond the fact of pregnancy, I think maybe you need to end this pregnancy. They understand that. They don't just say every pregnancy is life threatening. If you're pregnant, don't like nobody says that. That's ridiculous. But I'm saying the other side, they don't want to talk about elective abortion. They want to say every pregnancy is life threatening. And I think it's most generous interpretation. It's because they're afraid that if we try to draw these lines, women will be hurt. So don't draw any lines. Least generous interpretation. They recognize that the American public is definitely with them on life saving care and way less with them on elective abortion. Well, and then. The whole thing with the whole conversation of that this hurts, that women are going to get hurt if they can't get access to abortion just completely omits the women that abortion hurts. The pregnant women and the unborn women that that it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. But like if you're taking the pro-choice perspective and you you omit entirely the question of embryos, fetuses, unborn children, even if you omit that, abortion is not without risk. These procedures are not without risk. This is a really good example, actually. So not a famous case that's like, in the middle of a lawsuit, but just private citizen woman on TikTok. Somebody sent it to me on TikTok where she essentially says she had a mis- miscarriage for a wanted pregnancy. Uh-huh. Her child had passed away two weeks ago uh-huh. and she's in Texas. They're all in Texas. Always. But anyway, she's in Texas and she essentially says that she's had to carry her dead baby for two weeks and now she has to keep doing it until she until her body figures out the baby is dead and passes the remains or until she is on death's door herself because in Texas they won't treat her. And I was looking at this. I do not believe she's lying. It's a mistake for our side to just assume everybody who's scared and all the doctors who are hesitant are liars. Right. We need to we need to be more serious about yeah. this, I think. That's, that's the equivalent of them being like, oh, internalized misogyny. Come on. Some people, sure. There are probably some people that are political actors. Everybody, come right. on. I do not think she was lying. I think she was articulating her situation to the best of her knowledge and understanding. I also think she was freaking heartbroken. And freaking out. Yeah. As So say we all. But I was looking more into it. And I don't know her personal medical situation. It just was what inspired me to be trying to explore this. Because I can think of zero actual reasons 
why you would not help a woman remove the remains of her child. It's definitely not illegal. Texas is very explicit. You remember I said they said, this is not an abortion if X, Y, Z, and one of them was ectopic pregnancy. Another one is to remove the remains of an already dead child. Like it's, it's not even unclear at all. It's not that it, it's not a medical emergency exception to the abortion laws. It's just not an abortion right. in Texas. Right. Law. But I believe her that she is, she is saying they wouldn't remove the remains. So Why? what is happening? Best I can understand. Again, maybe not her specific situation, but in her, her TikTok went viral. And there were a bunch of comments on it from women in states that don't have abortion restrictions that said, oh, I went through the same thing. They would not treat me, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, OK, so OK, so at least at minimum, I know, assuming everyone is telling the truth, which I am, at minimum, I know that there is some kind of situation where doctors are not removing the remains and it might be related to Texas law. But clearly, it's not always related to abortion laws because this lady's in New York right. and she wouldn't do it. And then. Other side of that, there were a bunch of comments that said, I'm in Texas and they treated me immediately with no problem. So like, how am I going to fit? The, and I, I think also sometimes people really underestimate how how much of a chasm of understanding there is between medical professionals and their patients and the public. Because I consider myself a highly intelligent woman and I have two degrees in biology, not medical yeah. degrees. And so I talked to some friends smarter than me and essentially this coming full circle now in terms of risks. A DNC, which is what you would need surgically to remove the remains after mis miscarriage, it's not health neutral. It has its own risks and they're minimal and you should probably be fine, but it's not health neutral. You have risk of perforation, you have risk of different problems. And so there are medical professionals who are willing to do it, but they might want to wait and see if your body will just pass the remains on your own because for various reasons, for your situation, for whatever, they're like lesser interventionalists. It, yes. And so they might want to wait. And if it still hasn't, I had a situation like this. I had a missed miscarriage in California. So obviously abortion law is not an issue. And they told me, they said, if you want, we can wait a week right. and then see how it's going. They weren't like, oh my gosh, we need to do this immediately. You could go septic tomorrow. Right. That's not how it is a lot of the times. It's some women, it's weeks uh -huh. and weeks. There was a case out of Ohio. Sorry. A woman in Washington, D.C. had a missed miscarriage. This was a famous story about this in NPR last year. I've forgotten the, sp the specific names now, but she was in Washington, D.C. She had a missed miscarriage and her OBGYN in Washington, D.C., which has no gestational limits on abortion at right. all, said, let's wait and see. And she waited for weeks. And then she happened to be in Ohio for a wedding when she started to actually have the miscarriage. And then the Ohio ER said they checked her blood work. They checked things. They said, you're all right. You're doing fine. Why don't you go home? basically finish it on your own and they were wrong and she started bleeding a lot she had to come back she passed out basically or she almost passed out because she lost so much blood she went back to the er and they immediately treated her and sent her on her way but it was this whole case and the case was in the press it was covered as if oh they were too afraid to do what they needed to do because of ohio's abortion as if that isn't a common medical practice yes and like i'm not saying they handled it correctly no. but to assume that every single problem is because of abortion laws is iffy when you have the same problems in states without abortion laws when you have people in the states with abortion laws who are doing well and so on. All that to say, none of these solutions are completely risk-free. They might be a lot less risky than your current medical situation, and that's why you opt to do right. them. But they're not risk-free, and we don't we we talk about them as if they are. We talk about them as if the second they find out you have a missed miscarriage, they should do a DNC that day. Otherwise, they're too afraid because of the abortion laws. And like, I'm not saying that has never happened. Maybe it has, but but there's there's other factors here. You need to be thoughtful about this because it's not a good idea to act as if DNC or 
mifepristone and misoprostol or all these things are just completely, there's no issues at all. That's not true. No. They'll say abortion pills, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. But what do they mean by that? They don't mean 0% of the time there's ever that any doesn't problems. Exist. They mean something else. Right. If pregnancy can be life-threatening. Right, right. Exactly. They want us to acknowledge that pregnancy can be quite dangerous. And they're right. Yeah, and we absolutely. should. I wish that they would also acknowledge that surgical abortion, abortion pills, miscarriage care, there's not zero risks to that either if we're trying to evaluate all of these right. things. Right, exactly. You know? So to close us out, I want to talk about secular pro-life just a little bit. Sure. Tell me how this started. Oh, okay. I actually love this story. So it started from arguing online. (laughs) Let's see. I think about 2007, I joined Facebook for the first time. And back then they had debate boards, which was actually very cool. They don't have them anymore. I joined a bunch of groups for things that I'm interested in. A bunch of groups. Like I joined a group called Pro-Life. I also joined a group for Diet Coke. You know, I joined a bunch of groups. Yeah. Unthinkingly, not understanding the internet or social media really. Yeah. Not yet. Because it was very new. It was very new. It's so funny to look back on now. But I joined these debate board groups. And the long and short of it is that I and about four dozen other people, pro-life and pro-choice alike, obsessively argued about abortion Every single day for like a year or something. It will never be recreated. Yeah. And the people on there, you can't talk to people that regularly and that often without kind of becoming friends. Of course, the pro-life people all became friends and the pro-choice people became friends. But there was also significant crossover because even if we totally disagree on this issue, we do agree about obsessively arguing online. Exactly. We have that in common. Yeah. I'm still friends with some of them. Several of them came to my wedding. That's amazing. It was amazing. It was, I'm glad I experienced it. But one of the people in that several dozen group of obsessed people was Kelsey Hazard. And a year or two later, I don't remember the exact timing. She knew at the time I was an agnostic and she knew I was an agnostic. And she contacted me and she said, you know, I would like to create a group for secular pro-life people. She originally was going to call it the Pro-Life Union for Secularity. And luckily we nixed that idea. So close. But so she said, do you want to help? And I said, sure. And I thought, and I think she thought that it would basically be just another different Facebook group, just this one for secular people, and that we would go from there. So I said, sure, whatever. And back then, you know, I'm in community college. I don't have any kids. I didn't think so at the time, but I had a a lot of time on my hands. Yeah. She was the driving force in the beginning by far. She created this little website. She started a blog. Like, she just kind of just went for it. She's amazing that way. And in the first year or two, I just was in and out. I helped a little bit here and there. And she started being more proactive. She said, you know, I I wrote like a note. Remember Facebook used to have notes? Uh A note about my experience going to the Walk for Life at San Francisco. And she said, you should put this on our blog. Oh, oh, okay. You know, start just baby steps all the way. Then there was some point where... The University of San Francisco contacted her and said, do you, does Secular Pro Life do student presentations? Which, no, yeah, right. but sure. But yes. And so she, I lived there and she was like, do you want to do a presentation for this student group? And every single step, I was surprised and a little nervous, but kind of, oh, sure, why not? And that's, it just ballooned from there. Eventually, the Walk for Life at San Francisco, it's not nearly as big as the March for Life in D.C., but it is big. March for Life is on like a six figure level of in terms of attendees. Yeah. And Walk for Life is more like a five figure. Still huge. They asked me to speak 
at the Walk for Life, 60,000 people. I got to go on stage and talk to them. And it just kept going from there. But so from 2009 onward, it was all volunteer organization. We didn't even incorporate as a 501c3 until like 2018. Wow. And then what was really cool is people started coming to us. My One of my favorite parts of my job to this day is when someone contacts us and says, I thought I was the only anti-abortion atheist. Yeah. I'm so that I'm not. And I'm like, you're not. And I hear you. And, and here's a space. With us. Yeah. If here's a space. Like we, it's not just that you're allowed here. I specifically want you here. Do you have religious, religious people are involved as well? Yeah. Like I said, with Secular Pro-Life, we have had volunteers, donors, and just generally like supporters. We have had Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Evangelicals, Agnostics, Atheists, Muslims, Reformed Jews, Orthodox Jews, yeah. Wiccans, just name it. Buddhists. We've yeah. had all kinds. And, and, and a lot of times the ones who aren't specifically atheist or agnostic will approach us and say, I have a confession. You know, I'm not an atheist, but I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. I'm glad you're here. I care that you will use secular arguments. Like we will not post religious arguments or religious content yeah. on our blog because it's a secular space. Right. But otherwise I don't care. Now right. the people who run it are atheists. And to be frank, that started off as a coincidence, but we, we work with all kinds. Uh, the third part of our mission is interfaith coalition building. So, but so, yeah, so eventually we slowly, it's kind of embarrassing. We, we just stumbled into this. We, we didn't start off saying let's found a 501c3 and all that that entails. We have no idea. Right. And then circa 2017 2018 we had people giving us little donations here and there enough to like go to the march for life and things like that you know we're almost entirely online it's not not that expensive right we started up people reach out to us to say i really want you to be bigger and i'm willing to donate to make that happen to our shock and so then i got to the point now where i have a husband i have kids i have a full-time job and i'm still doing all of this unpaid which i i love to do i can hardly stop myself but i created this presentation called Deconstructing Three Pro-Choice Myths. And it took me 60 hours to make it. And I just didn't work. Yeah. Did that. And and, and, and our, we are not, we do not have <laughs> the kind of income. I'm like, my husband is so patient because we don't have the kind of income where I'm like, I'm just not going to work for a week. Right. And just do my hobby here, you know. Or what you're passionate about. It got to the point where some some of our, some smarter people than us said, you know, ask people if they will pay you to present it. And that, to me, that seemed so crazy because i just want everybody to listen to this as much as possible i can't but but realistically you can't keep doing it at the level we're doing it unless you happen to have like a trust fund or something exactly and so that started babies we became a 501c3 initially we just had people piecemeal here and there helping us with like specific projects and then just a couple of years ago we basically had a donor come to us and say, hey, and I was working in a forensics lab and this was hard for me. I loved my job yeah. in the forensics lab. It is a cool job. Yeah. I worked with great, smart people. It was it, it gave me my sense of wanting to work for justice, like all these things. I love that job. And when you tell people you work in forensics, they always think it's cool. When you tell people you work for an anti-abortion organization run by atheists, uh, uh, not as much, you know, and not so, the same response, not the same response at all. And so I was already working a job that I loved that had good stability, that had good upward growth. So this was a really, this was a tough call, but we had, I also love secular pro-life and we had a donor come to us, a major donor and said, listen, I will give you one year. I will cover your salary for one year. I will not do anything after that, but I will give you this runway on the condition 
that you do this full time and not in between other things. Yeah. And to be frank, I probably would have said no. I'm I'm pretty risk averse. Yeah. My husband, we talked about it and I won't drag you through all the details, but we had stuff going on in our life where like this maybe could make sense. And so to my own shock, I said, okay. And that was two and a half years ago. So we haven't had to fold up yet. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I'm completely obsessed. If I didn't have kids, I would do this 80 hours a week. Yeah. No sweat. I can't stop. You know, I love that though. Yeah. It's all been a surprise to us. One thing after another, just whole way. Kelsey and I, all the time, we are stunned at how far this has gone. We actually just did a post yesterday of the international reach that we've had. People from all these different countries telling us how much our work has helped them with their advocacy in other places. You know, in Europe, they're trying to build space. In Latin America, they're trying to hold the line and they're using our content. How did this happen? You know, it's amazing. amazing. What are you like excited and looking forward to coming up? I was our first ever actual staff and then we hired an assistant. So that was very exciting. Yeah. And now we're hoping to do a couple internships. And essentially I'm excited about, we're being much more cognizant about trying to build stronger connections with other pro-life groups and like open up that communication for kind of the kind of thing, the kind of way that we talk about this. Maybe, maybe we could help more groups do that. Yeah. I'm very excited about expanding our content dramatically. TikTok has been very good for us. Yeah. Yeah. We just sort of also came onto their summer of 2022 and just started just throwing things out there and it's worked out really well. I would say I'm excited to improve coordination in the pro-life movement. Now that Dobbs is done and we are just all running around trying to figure out what we're doing. And now there's all these different state level things. And a lot of it's different, you know, very different fights happening in different places. Yeah. Be frank, we could have been a lot more prepared. I think a lot of 100%. people really believe that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. I think that that's a hundred percent accurate. Like, just the, I did not. I didn't either. My best friend was in town, where she's like my long distance best friend, and I remember sitting on the couch and just being like, "I genuinely did not in my lifetime." Exactly, not even in my they, lifetime. So even when they leaked the draft in no. May, I didn't even read it. I was like, "I will believe it." When it is done, Same. I do not believe it. And then even when they like had the first news releases come out, I didn't even read them. I just went to the Supreme Court, to the website, to the actual document, because I still didn't believe it. Yeah, you're like, they're misinterpreting this somehow. They're like, exaggerating. Yeah. It, there's no way. And then you you open it. Have you read the Dobbs decision? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You open it. It's like the first little sentence. It basically says, Roe v. Wade is overturned. overturned. I I wept. I did, too. Straight up. I did yeah. too. I I remember being pretty emotional about it on multiple fronts. I remember that phrase repeated in my mind, just I, not in my lifetime. No. There was no way in my lifetime. I definitely didn't believe it would happen in my lifetime. And I think a lot of people on both sides of this debate thought that. And so it was very shocking. And But it did kind of force us into, oh no, this is happening in our lifetime. What are yes. we going to do? And, and you know, hindsight bias, whatever, but there's a lot of things we could have been more prepped on if we really believed yeah. it was happening. And I, that's unfortunate, but it is what it is. We're where we are now. So now we need to figure out what are, what are we doing? Yeah. And how are we, how are we ensuring that we advance our cause? We convince more hearts and minds to see our vision that your children were valuable before they were born. So were you, so was I, so were mine. Yeah. You know, we need to be building this culture 
And we need to be making sure that the laws we craft are very careful and narrowly aligned what is what people are worried about and getting rid of the rest. That's what we're going for. I love that. I love like a, you have such a clear vision and direction that you're heading and you communicate all of this so clearly. I feel like I learned a lot in this conversation. There were a lot of things that you said that I was like, oh, maybe I do say that. I shouldn't say that or I shouldn't, you know, approach that that way. And not in like, not in a condemning way. You just, that's how you learn is by having these conversations and by listening to people who are having these, who are out there having these conversations. So I'm just really thankful. Thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom and for your passion. Thank you for giving me the platform. I'm always, always happy to talk to new audiences. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right, see you next week.